America. You want to put one black man, one example, America. As though he invented this shit. As though R. Kelly is the number one pedophile on the planet. When the average American Caucasian white man has been raping the whole planet and everybody on it. And you tell me <laughs> R. Kelly deserves he deserves just him. I'm not in my job. I'm not once again I'm not defending him. But R. Kelly deserves a documentary and the whole black nation doesn't deserve a documentary for what America has done to us? You mean to tell me? <laughs> Millions of us. Millions. Children, men and women being raped on farms by men, by women with metal utensils. You mean to tell me, America, America, you are going to go on Lifetime, Lifetime which is owned by A-N-E, A-N-E which is owned by Robert, a.k.a. Bob Iger. A&E, which is owned by Robert, a.k.a. Bob Iger, who was arrested for child pornography. America, you use the channel owned by another channel owned by a CEO who he himself has been arrested for child pornography. Okay, um, let's uh, start with... Uh, A&E Networks is a is not owned by uh, Bob Iger. It's a joint venture by Hearst Communications and the Disney ABC Television Group, which is of course which is a unit of the Walt Disney Company, which Bob Iger is a uh, is the CEO of. So technically, if you want to be all official about it, um, Bob Iger has some control over it or whatever. You know, they do have any networks do have an interim CEO. Uh, secondly, um, Bob Iger was never invested, uh, uh, arrested on um, child pornography charges. That was uh, somebody uh, wrote a fake news report literally a decade ago. And apparently some dude on Twitter is trying to keep that story alive. So. Uh, you know the the moral of the story is uh don't trust Hotep dudes on um on Instagram because um just 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 part of the spreading of false information that uh that that boggles my mind really because you think we live in an age where um information can be easily accessed because there's this thing called the internet but apparently. People just still continue to bring up stuff that they think is factual, but I'm I'm wasting too much time talking about this. I just wanted to 
play that because that dude, it was very like you, you you didn't see it, but the dude was like he had he had the whole bow tie and and then the, the handkerchief wipe wiping off his face like he's speaking the truth. And I'm just like, shut up, dude. All right, it's um uh Wednesday, uh January 9th, two thousand nineteen. Uh, be honest with you, I don't feel like talking about much because um. I mean, we're, I think we're all trying to just get all of us going into the new year. We're just we're just trying to uh, build up some kind of momentum, and it just seems like everybody is it, just like we just don't want to f- deal with all the same. You know, it's all it's the same thing like New Year, new me, but we still got to talk about. Trump, because last night he was on television for eight minutes, just basically all, all he's basically saying is we need to build a wall because Mexicans are coming over here and killing everybody. It's like it's not you. It's just it's gotten to the point now where it's just like there's there's always gonna be um, the minute Trump says something, there are all these news outlets ready to fact check everything he said and it's got got a point where like do you really have to to do that because like, we we know he's speaking speaking out of his ass like he's been speaking out of his ass for the for the longest and it's just just very apparent now there's a lot of you know you might as well just like be talking out of his ass like jim carrey and ace ventura just just walking into meetings at the White House literally bending over and trying to talk out of his ass because that's basically what it is. It's just a lot of ass talking. Wasn't that a Bee Gees song? Ass talking? Uh, let me let me go through my notes. Uh, oh, this this was a news story that I that I pulled out recently. Uh, pres- uh, this happened earlier today, I believe. Uh, President Trump Stormed out of a White House meeting with congressional leaders on Wednesday after Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she would not fund a border wall, even if he agreed to reopen the government, escalating a confrontation that has shuttered large portions of the government for 19 days and counting. Stunned Democrats emerged from the meeting in the White House Situation Room, declaring that the president had thrown a temper tantrum and slammed his hands on the table before leaving with an an abrupt bye-bye. Uh, this is this is what we have. We have, we literally have the boss baby as our as our president. We just have a little pouting, Veruca Salt-like little bitch. Our president's a little bitch, people. But 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 you knew that. This we just basically. Uh, this is this is just what it is. Un- unless somebody pulls some twist for the next next six months or whatever, we're just gonna have to deal with Trump and his temper tantrums and everything. And just at least Stormy Daniels uh made things in- uh entertaining last night when when the president was talking. She was on her Instagram or Insta story uh, in her underwear folding her laundry. Let me tell you something. If you didn't see that, that was ten times more fascinating than than whatever the hell President Orange Sorbet was talking about. 
Uh, you want me to talk about R. Kelly? You want me want me to talk about something that black people have known about now for, for damn near going on what twenty five years or so? I don't know. Is because of course there was the big documentary surviving R. Kelly on Lifetime, where for three nights straight. Um, a bunch of women uh, who uh, went on went on on television to allegedly to, to to say allegedly that R. Kelly abused them, uh, you basically kidnapped them, and just did foul things to them. And at this point now, it's just like. And also, up here, there's uh, there's uh, charges opening up now. At, because of the the uh, the docu series that aired, there's some new charges uh, being brought against Mr. Kelly. But the sad thing is that if it wasn't for the fact there's there's several factors that play in a, uh, play in this. First of all, it wasn't for the fact that he continues to make music that that plays at that you can that you can easily fill up. Uh, the playlist of a family family reunion or barbecue or just a night at the club, R. Kelly would would not be where he is now, which is not in jail. Uh, secondly, um, I've said this before and I'll say it again, if R. Kelly peed on a white girl, whether she was underage or not, White people would have found a way to bring back lynching. And and just they would have hung him up in the highest tree in uh in Chicago to uh, prove an example, you don't go peeing on the little on the white girls, but he peed on black girls. And of course, who gives a damn about black girls just hell just like hey like black girls end up missing all the time just nobody gives a damn about about black women so you know just R. Kelly can just go nuts on this just you know that he, he that's that's how he managed to get away with it for so long he just concentrated on black I'm, I'm, I'm and also there was a a a, a woman of, of Latina flavor but but mostly he preyed upon young white, young black girls, sorry, and um, that's how he got away with it. Even though, here's the thing: just even though, because it, it's R. Kelly is basically black culture's creepy uncle, and when black people know about a creepy uncle, creepy person, we just keep that um, to ourselves. And we kind of warn our children or, or whatever, like don't go near R. Kelly. You know he does creepy ass things. So, but because because that's how we basically treat R. Kelly. We, we we treat him like a member of family, even though we know he does some creepy ass stuff. And it's, it's funny, it's just you know. There, there have been nothing but stories written about the creepy ass stuff he does. I've, I've written 
things about, I've written stories and pieces throughout the years about, hey, this dude is a walking freak show. But R. Kelly, he, he just keeps dropping, uh, 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 you know, TP2 albums or whatever those, those damn things are. 12 play albums, sorry. And, and But people forget about, you know, the sex tape and getting married to Aaliyah and and this the sex cult you know as long as, as long as he keeps dropping them too that 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 get all the ladies moist uh we're we're just going to let them slide and and lady gaga I see is uh is getting swept up in this cuz uh I mean she yeah she did a song with uh R Kelly uh, not too long ago called, uh, do what you want. And that was a big deal. Like, uh, a few years ago, and I knew that that was going to come back and bite her in the ass. Like, why the hell would you deal with Kelly? Especially, you know, cause she you know, does a lot of, um, tunes about female in inspiration and empowerment and what the hell you do. Uh, you know, do a, do a track with the, with the, with the, with the, the pee on you, dude. And uh, if I were her, I would I would condemn the hell out of R. Kelly. Just, just hey, just like you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was, you know, just trying to do something new. Just like it was a mistake. And I'm sorry. Please don't hold it against me. Dude, do the thing Kevin Hart didn't do immediately after people started going through his twitters, his tweets about. Uh, gay people and everything. Just uh, that that whole thing is a fiasco to hell. Just everybody screwed up on that. Like the Academy and Kevin Hart and 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 apparently Ellen now because Ellen Ellen is, is is not on good footing with the LGBTQ crowd for not uh, taking Hart to task. And Hart is not even like it's, it's gotten to point now. Just like yeah, I'm not doing. I'm not hosting the Oscars anymore. I'm not hosting. This is this is too damn much. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the reason why nobody else hosts an Oscars. So now we're gonna have a hostless Oscars, which is which is lovely because the last time there was a hostless Oscars, that was the infamous uh, Snow White and Rob Lowe show. So we got that to look forward to. It's a damn train wreck left and right. Oh man, I don't even feel like watching awards anymore because um, last Sunday on Sunday, of course, it was the uh, Golden Globes. And, uh, that was a, that was a disaster as hell. They, you know, they, they had, a, a for best picture drama, they had, they literally had good movies in that category, but instead they gave it to Green Book, which, as I like to call it, the cute racism movie. They gave it to them. And actually, I just was looking on the, tr on the Twitter sphere. And it turns out that uh, that the uh, Nick Vallelonga, the guy uh, v Vigo Morgensen plays in the uh, in the movie, uh, and who wrote the movie, uh, uh, you know, had had some very um, offensive things. Uh, he, he he actually tweeted at Trump about Muslims in Jersey City cheering when towers went down. And just all this other stuff, and just like, like what, what, yeah, just and then I'm not even gonna get into the Bohemian Rhapsody, that whole thing, which is of course is 
partially directed by uh, Kevin Spacey's wingman. So, um, this time of year often depresses me because, you know, there are, there, there are a lot of good movies that came out last year that I could uh, tell you about, but they're not, they're not going to be, they're not going to win anything. You honestly think, this is so sad because it's like Spike Lee made Black Klansman, which is a very good movie, but of course, you know, this is going to be the year that he's probably going to lose out to Green Book, which is just a damn insult left and right. I would sooner take him winning, losing out to Stars Born than Green Book, but it's, that seems to be the case. It's, it's going to be a Green Book, a hostless Green Book extravaganza on Oscar night. I need. Uh, I, I'm. I'm gonna close it right now. I'm. I, let's just get to the movie. I did music. I didn't even tell you about the dude who was licking a uh, uh, doorbell for three hours in California. But you know, you 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 just go online and find that because that was that's that's just nasty. All right, this is the most splendorific show on KPFT. Yeah, let's 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 call it that. This is the Sour Hour. Let's see if this plays.
This is the uh, Sour Hour, a.k.a. Everything is Canceled, a.k.a. The, the Shower is Busted, girl. Um, and you're listening to this on KPFT HD2, not 3, 2. I am uh, Craig D. Lindsay, a.k.a. Uncle Crizzle, a.k.a. Black Larry David, a.k.a. Anastasia Beaverhausen, a.k.a. Just, just a dude trying to do something with his life. And uh, if you want to want to hit me up on the uh, social media platforms, um, you know, Twitter, Instagram, all that fun stuff. Um, you can uh, get at me at um, Uncle Crizzle, U-N-C-L-E-C-R-I-Z-Z-L-E. Uh, hashtag uh, the Sour Hour. Let me know you're listening to this uh, Godforsaken program. And uh, you can listen to this uh, sh- episode and other episodes like it, previous archive episodes, um, on various platforms, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Apple, Mixcloud. It's, it's out there. Just just, uh, just look for Uncle Crizzle or the Sour Hour, a.k.a. Everything is Canceled, and um, you can find it. Okay, let's uh, go through the the music that we played. Uh, First up, uh, Black Tie, White Noise. That was by uh, David Bowie and uh, featuring Al B. Shore. Uh, They did a a track together, I believe, that was... uh, uh, That's from the uh, Black Tie, White Noise album that uh, Bowie felt like doing that after the uh, L.A. riots to try to bring unity together, and you know, just or just you know, trying to get some sort of black, white, ebony, ivory thing going on. Not, not I guess not too many people know that. And of course, if, you know, had to play that because uh, yesterday was David Bowie's uh, was it birthday. Yeah, it was birthday. Yeah, because it's like he's on. He's born the same day as Elvis, so that was birthday and. Uh, just, just giving a shout out to David, uh, and uh, after that was um, Skipping Stones by uh, this uh, this performer named Gallant uh, from his um, Ology album, which I think came out a year or so ago, and that's uh, Skipping Stones featuring Janae Aiko. And after that, uh, I just felt like playing some Banks. That 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 lovely songstress Banks uh, from her uh, album, her debut album, Goddess. This is what it feels like. So there's your music right there. All right, let's get to our guest. And uh, once again, I have to uh, go uh, uh, pre-record pre-recorded mode 
because uh, I believe a couple of Sar- Saturdays ago, I um, I spoke to uh, this uh, this guy, and um, and uh, just because you know, I managed to catch him on his off weekend or something, and um, he's a now he's a colleague, a mentor, and I just felt the need I wanted to talk to him, so um, let's uh, let's let's fire up the PC. And uh, let's see if we can get this going. Okay, uh, we're here uh, talking with uh, uh, an author and a longtime colleague of mine. Um, he has uh, written uh, for so many publications. Uh, he's currently uh, the TV critic at uh, New York Magazine and in uh, Vulture. It's uh, online arts and culture wing and uh he's also the are you still the uh editor in chief over at uh, uh com? i'm 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 editor at large now oh okay all right i, I don't i don't run the day-to-day as much as i used to i still i'm i'm involved but i'm not like uh you know i don't have my finger in every pie okay and uh he is uh also he's also written a lot of books uh one of them is uh is out this week uh, called The Soprano Sessions, which he co-wrote with his longtime colleague, Alan Seppenwall. So, uh, Matt Zoller cites, welcome to the Sour Hour. <laughs> is that, that's what you're calling it now. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, have you, have you listened to the show the past year? That's, uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the, the show I do. I forgot to ask before we, we started. Have you, have you listened to the Sour Hour? No, I've listened. I mean, when it was called, yeah, that Mom other that, that yeah, that other line, that that other thing that we get, yeah, because really it's public radio. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but you know how it goes. But I, but hopefully, I covered it when just with that line. But uh, but yeah, just uh, but yeah, just um, thought I have you on the show now because uh, of uh, the new book that you have, which uh, you uh. It's about the Sopranos. For, for people who don't know, uh, you and Alan Sepinwall used to be film critics at the uh, the uh, New Jersey Star Ledger. Television critics. Television, yeah, television critics. Sorry, and um, because you also movie critic over at New York Press. Yeah, at the and, same time. Yeah, like ni- nineteen ninety five to two thousand six was when I was doing both of those jobs. Yeah. And so, but uh, mostly, uh, but but you were doing TV over at Star Ledger along with Alan, and basically, you were you two both were critics right when The Sopranos hit, which yeah. in many ways just like I, I can assume back then you guys must have been on Sopranos watch throughout the whole thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, it was uh, I started out. I covered the show first. I wrote about the pilot. The, the way. It worked with me and Alan was it was like uh, like it was like the squad room on homicide like whoever drew the case first was the primary mm-hmm. and I drew the sopranos first like I, I was somebody from HBO called me and said hey we have this new show called the sopranos that's set in New Jersey do you want to see a pilot and I said of course and I thought it was amazing and um, I ended up going to the set and doing a profile of uh, I did a general feature on the show itself, and then I did a profile of James Gandolfini, which to this day is, I think it's one of like a couple of solo interviews of him. He didn't do very many interviews. 
And this was before the show was on the air. And then when the show was on the air, I wrote about it a lot. And, and I wrote about it in season two and season three. And then at the end of season three, I decided I think I've had enough of The Sopranos. And I, and I handed it off to Alan. And Alan covered seasons four, five, and six, or, you know, six, one, and six, six B, six A and six B, I guess. Um, so we were kind of on shifts. Like I had the first shift and he had the second shift. Yes. And, uh, but you also, <clears throat> even after, uh, you handed over to, uh, Alan, you, um, went on into, um, recap it, uh, for, uh, I believe you did, a you like, didn't you recap it? I forget which, uh. I recapped for all Indy. Of, uh, mo- most of season six, mo- not all of it, but most of season six for The House Next Door, my yeah. blog, which is now a part of Slant Magazine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And uh, and also, and basically, it just uh, came into writing this book. Because um, you've also uh, done uh, uh, companion books. You did a companion book to Mad Men. Alan did a companion mm-hmm. book to Breaking Bad. And both of y'all got together yes. to do TV the book, I believe, where you you listed yes. the hundred best uh, TV shows. And I believe The Sopranos was number one. It was number two, actually, two. after uh, The Simpsons. Yeah, The Simpsons. I, I was just what, trying to remember which came first. So in many ways, uh, writing about The Sopranos has been kind of this this constant throughout uh, your career these days, uh, especially the past been, twenty yeah. years. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, just it, I, I've been I've been grappling with you know talk, talking about this because uh, you know I know you know, you've talked you I don't know if I ever told you about this but just like just uh, just you know when it comes to Sopranos I mean I've always uh, kind of been kind of kind of mad on the whole subject it's just like you know I watched it but I didn't watch it with the same enthusiasm i watched it the way that someone would watch something just to be a part of the converse the general conversation mm-hmm. and so i think i think me and tom carson are the only two people like you had contrarian views on the sopranos and everything well there are more than that i remember back in the day james wolcott recently wrote a piece that had you know basically kind of had very complimentary things to say about the show but back in the day he was a naysayer and in fact i remember there was a public event where he was on a panel with camille paglia and they both were really down on the show and he actually said that he thought law and order was a greater uh, achievement than uh, the sopranos which i thought was kind of crazy at the time and i and i still do and i love law and order but the sopranos is is leagues beyond it in terms of evolving the medium uh but uh yeah i mean the big thing for me was seeing how uh how prescient the show seems now i mean in terms of the themes that it that it hit over and over in particular the you know way the idea of the society uh, a society that is obsessed with waste and consumption and isn't even aware of it and, you know, all these details from, you know, the gigantic cars, the guys in Tony's crew drive these gas guzzling vehicles and the huge house that he lives in. And the fact that he's a glutton, like he can't, you know, he's he's eating and, you know, probably every other scene of the show, he can't stop eating. And and he's voracious, you know, with alcohol, with drugs, with women and um, uh, and 
he runs, he's a waste management consultant and a lot of his business revolves around the disposal of, of, uh, garbage, but also the disposal of bodies, which are a form of garbage when they become inconvenient to him. And, uh, later in the show, particularly you get, there's a lot more discussion of this fear that we're destroying the environment and the human race is going to go extinct. And those are things that, you know, obviously have been on everybody's mind, particularly since the seventies, which was the generation that gave us those, those TV commercials, you know, worrying, uh, warning people not to litter on roads, but it's intensified. And I think, I think that part of the show plays, uh, much better now than it did then. I mean, like 20 years ago, it felt like almost kind of an artistic eccentricity, but now that stuff is in the mainstream of, of the discourse, this fear that, you know, we're kind of on this forward death march as a, as a, as a civilization, you know, that, uh, that idea, that famous line that's quoted in the first episode of the show where he says, I feel like I came in at the end, the best is over. That felt like, you know, a manifestation of Tony's self-pity and also the fact that the show debuted in 1999, which was right on the cusp of the millennium. And a lot of people were concerned that the end of the American century meant the end of America, basically. Uh, And I think that's mainly what Tony was concerned with. But it rings very differently now, like this feeling that um, basically it's just dark times ahead from here on out. And I really hope that's not the case, but it's definitely something that I think I'm feeling that more than I was in 1999. And I think a lot of people are as well. Well, yeah, of course, when you you talk about the Sopranos, you can't because it is as you're talking about it, it is one of those shows where if you accept what it is at face value, you, it's one of the first shows where if you, if you, if you accept what you're watching at face value, you're not going to get the intricacies of, um, what's, what's going on or what you, what you, uh, get from it. And many ways like that's, it's one of the, one of those first shows that just kind of acknowledge that it's, this is, it's one thing, but it's also about something else. That's true. And I think that was a source of frustration for a lot of people who watched the show. Like even people who were fans of the show got extremely frustrated with it. And I know this because Alan and I, you know, we worked at we worked at the Star Ledger, New Jersey's largest newspaper at the time when The Sopranos was actively in production. And, you know, and I believe almost every season begins with Tony going to the end of his driveway and picking up a copy of the Star Ledger. So there was a connection. There was an organic connection between the the newspaper, the state of New Jersey, the show, and the characters on the show, and um, uh, and as a result, I think people in New Jersey felt even more proprietary towards the show than anyone else in the country did. I mean, I would imagine it would probably be like, you know, being from Liverpool and having an opinion on the Beatles. And there were a lot of people in the state who did not like the fact that the show was not just a gangster show; that there was also all of this stuff in there about psychiatry. And dream analysis, and they spent a lot of time dealing with Tony, Tony's relationship with his wife Carmela, and his children uh, a- AJ and Meadow, and uh, and there was all of this stuff about you know him fretting over what he called the rotten putrid soprano genes and the fear that he all of his bad characteristics were things that were genetic and were going to be handed down to his children, and there were a lot of people who just weren't interested in any of that. All they wanted to know was who's going to get whacked next. That's all they cared about, and we saw the letters. The letters came in steadily, and and the second season, especially when, um, you know, when they dealt with uh, Big Pussy the Rat, um, in a very anticlimactic way, and they also killed off, you know, I, I don't know how conscious I need to be of spoilers for a twenty year old show, but they killed off a pretty major character who we thought we were saving for the climax for a spectacular exit, and they kind of dispatched with him in a 
I thought a brilliant way, but like kind of a, a pull the rug out from under you way that denied people the obvious satisfactions that they were seeking, which is Tony kills, kills the character and somebody else did it. And, uh, and the way that big pussy's treachery was exposed was through dreams, you know, ser- Tony having a series of dreams. And I, I think that fr- that frustrated people too. And like, there were a lot of people who wrote us letters saying they were done with the show. And I seriously doubt they were done with the show. Probably when it came back, they were watching it again, but like, it's easy to retroactively assume that everybody loved the show uh, and that the people who said they loved the show loved everything about the show. And that was not the case. Like there's a lot of retroactive revising going on now because with the distance of time, I think it's easier to see that it was a landmark show, whether or not you, you know, whether or not we personally approve of every single thing about it, you know, it definitely left its mark. And I think it was a little harder to see that maybe in the moment, but, uh, um, I think without all of that stuff that people didn't like at the time, I don't think it would have been as special of a show. Well, it, it kind of reminds me because you're mentioning Walcott. He was the first one to tell me about uh, uh, that that great piece of hyperbole from uh, Stephen Holden when he called it like the greatest work of art. popular culture of the last 25 years. Yeah, that famous, which one. was. That was well. That was ridiculous. That was completely ridiculous, and I made fun of it at the time. Yeah, and and it was also, and in fact, I write about this in the book a little bit in the essay on the premiere of season two. And remember the show. You know, the show came back after a one-year hiatus, and in the meantime, a million think pieces had been written, including pieces like the one by Stephen Holden, who had apparently he had just caught up with the show, like he hadn't been watching it when it was on, and he rushed to write this huge think piece. And it's funny, like when major works of popular culture appear, people who wouldn't normally write about it feel like they have to come in and claim it. And mm-hmm. what happened in, in between season one and two was a lot of film critics ran in and tried to claim The Sopranos. Yeah. Either dismiss either dismiss The Sopranos or claim it and claim it as cinema. And that's what Holden did. He, he described it as a mega movie. No, I'm sorry. Vincent Canby. The film critic for the Times wrote a piece about how The Sopranos was an example of what he called the mega movie, having never heard of a of a miniseries. Apparently, you know, he identified the property of the mega movie as a TV series where the episodes all have interconnected plots that 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 make a single statement. When you stand back to it, it's like, wow, have you not been watching any television that's been made in the last like fifteen years? Yeah. Because a lot of shows have done that, and a lot of not just American shows, but a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the master the, the the works that we think of as masterpieces by people like Fassbender and and Ingmar Bergman uh, and Lars von Trier early on were made for television. They were television yeah. shows. So you know, so there was a level of ignorance on the part of some of these Times writers that was kind of appalling, considering they called themselves the paper of record. But you know, that was that was a particularly ridiculous one. This idea that it was the greatest work of popular culture of the last twenty five years. You know, I would certainly say it was one of the great television series. But uh, but, you know, but you kind of I think you kind of have to do that. And that's and that's a kind of a day late dollar short thing to say, like Mm -hmm. if you weren't there for the first conversation and you have to answer the question of why are you writing about this now? And the answer is to make a giant proclamation like that, which is really kind of absurd. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like I'm you know trying to diminish the accomplishments of the show. I'm not. I'm just saying that the accomplishments of the artistic accomplishments of the Sopranos are very much bound up with the fact that it's a show that it's a television show. And like, it does things that a 
movie could never do, that a novel could never do, that a you know a big fat double album with uni- thematically unified songs could never do. Although I think ultimately that's probably in some ways the best example is like a a season like a season three, for example, or season four of the show where the song you know the the each episode if you think each episode is like a song on an album it's not as serialized as maybe season 1 or se- you know season 5 <clears throat> um everything holds together at a level of theme and it's more like uh, Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska or Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life or uh the white album or something like that where it's like all of the episodes feel like they belong together but they don't necessarily connect in any obvious way Mm. You know, you might get like one scene or two scenes where like the ongoing plot gets service, but a lot of it is just watching the characters behave in this environment that you're familiar with and doing the sorts of things that Sopranos characters would do. And that was that's a thing that I think that TV dramas have lost track of to a certain degree. And I and I miss, you know, one of the things that I think the binge watching model of of television has done is it's made the people who create television concentrate more on these long form plots, which means that once you've started watching episode one, you're kind of committing yourself to eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours or however many they give you. And each episode ends with a cliffhanger that's designed to get you to watch the next one. And when you're making television shows that air once a week and there's a, a, you know, six days of space in between each episode, you don't have to do that quite as much. And and I like the I like the intellectual breathing space that that the one episode at a time model gives you because you watch an episode like the Teddy Perkins episode of Atlanta in season two. Like, I don't think that would have had as much impact if we didn't have a week to sit there talking about it. Yeah. You know, like if you just rushed on to the next thing. It's like when you're eating a meal out and, and there's no space between courses. It's like, wait a minute, don't, you know, like they're putting the pie in front of you and you haven't finished your, you know, your entree yet. It's like, give me a second to reflect here, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like the binge watching model in some in one respect in that it gives you everything at once and you can kind of decide how to watch it. But I think that does lead to the impulse of binging of you know like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna try to get through as many of these as i can it's like eh, i don't think that's so good i don't think that's so good for the storytelling really Mm -hmm. and it also leads to a lot of um what you know what alan i believe dubbed netflix bloat yeah you know where like you know a lot of those marvel shows were the worst offenders where they'd have 10 episodes you know and each one ran almost a full hour and honestly there was maybe half an hour of plot in each one if that so well i mean uh you 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 touched on a lot so but uh real quickly before we uh, uh close this out talk about it uh, because um this is a very important week for you as when this airs because i believe um as this airs the, this is the start of the uh, sopranos film festival at the uh, ifc center center which you have curated tell people more about that yeah, so this was an idea that I had because, you know, a lot of the book is about this idea of the cinematic properties of The Sopranos. And I thought it'd be cool to do a, a festival that mixed episodes of The Sopranos which, with movies that influenced The Sopranos in one way or another and a couple of movies that wouldn't exist without it. And uh, so so what we're doing is we're, we're showing movies that I selected and also David Chase selected, including Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. We're going to screen Barry Lyndon. We're going to screen uh, Blow Up, 
uh, Antonioni's uh, 1966 film, which has a very ambiguous kind of head scratcher ending like the Sopranos did. And cul-de-sac Polanski's film, which is a, you know, a satirical thing on marriage and gangsterism, which Chase said was an influence on his sensibility. We're showing The Public Enemy with James Cagney, which is a, a great a great gangster movie in its own right. But it also happens to be the episode that Tony watches over and over obsessively in the episode where his mom dies. Mm. And that's going to be part of a double feature. And uh, and we're also uh, showing, in some cases, uh, short short subjects along with Sopranos episodes that are sort of in the same flavor, like uh, the episode where uh, Knight in White Satin Armor, which is the one with the big surprise from episode two that I alluded to. We're going to show that one with um, Showbiz Bugs, the, mm-hmm. which is where da- Daffy and, and Bugs are competing at a vaudeville theater, and uh, it leads to an ending that I think is every bit as shocking as that episode. And, yeah. um, and we're showing Pine Barren. Steve Buscemi is going to come out for that. And we're showing a um, Three Stooges short um, called Idiot's Deluxe, where the, where the Stooges go camping in the woods and are menaced by a bear. Yeah. Um, and that's because Terrence Winter said that they were constantly referencing the Three Stooges whenever they wrote the slapstick comedy. And um, I thought it made sense to put those together. So we're just kind of having some fun experiments in film programming for this. Couldn't get three amigos. <laughs> uh, that would have been a good one. Well, but we did have we do have um, Trees Lounge, yeah, uh, Steve Buscemi's film, which I think is a great film, and Chase loves that movie. Like Chase never misses the opportunity to talk about that film, and and uh, he got his casting directors George Ann Walken and Sheila Jaffe from that movie. He saw the movie and was like, "Wow, whoever cast this, that's who I want to cast the Sopranos," and he got them, and then. Later, Steve Buscemi started directing episodes of the show, and eventually he ended up on the show as an actor as well. So you could probably make an argument that Trees Lounge maybe is more influential than any other movie on The Sopranos, except perhaps for Goodfellas, which has 30 cast members in common, and we're showing that one too. All right. Uh, tell people uh, where you can, you know, where you added the social medias, where they can contact you if they want to know more about all yeah, this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So if you if, if you want to find out more about the Sopranos Film Festival, you go to the IFC Center's uh, website, and they have a complete schedule up there, including you know program information and ticket information. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites, and uh, you can find me and my work uh, at uh, Vulture slash New York Magazine and. Um, RogerEbert.com, among other places. And the Sopranos sessions is just out, so uh, just pick that up if, if you're a big Sopranos fan. I love the love uh, reading through it, especially all the older articles that you used to do back then. Yeah, Ledger and everything. I, I was glad we could put those in there because I thought it was good to show like what Alan and I were writing at the time, and mm-hmm. in some cases, I think we were sort of eerily correct in the things that we wrote, and in other cases, like laughably off base. Yeah, <laughs> like the 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 uh, piece that I wrote about Pine Barrens after it aired, I I spent the last part of it speculating on like how they were going to wrap up all of these all of these plot threads, and the answer was they weren't. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that, like I couldn't have known that at the time. But. Yeah, that's, that's usually how the show how the show rolled. Well, yep. uh, that thank you uh, very much for taking part in this. Uh, you know, good luck with everything, and just uh, you know, keep on trucking, man. Okay, thanks. All right. All right, that was. I really need to stop interviewing people in the morning because I am not up. I'm, I'm so disoriented. Plus, I'm not. I'm not. I haven't been drinking, so that's usually how it goes when I interview people. 
during the non-sober hours. That's what you get. You get uh, disoriented Craig. Anyway, uh, The Soprano Sessions is in bookstores. It came out yesterday. Uh, Matt Zoller Seitz and uh, Alan Sepperwall, they did a great job. They interviewed David Chase. They have all the episodes uh, recapped. If, you, uh, if you're in New York and you want to see the uh, Sopranos Film Festival, it's going on starting tonight through Monday at IFC Center. Uh, go to ifccenter.com for more details. So, uh, till next week. Uh, oh, uh, by the way, uh, uh, Flight Squad Radio is coming up next. And uh, we got the Flash Gordon Park show going on in the main studio on uh, KPFT 9.1. Check those shows out if you still want to listen to stuff. But until next week, this is Craig Lindsay saying, uh, Sarah Huckabee, you, me, and some motion lotion and some and some smart food uh cheddar and cheese popcorn mix those are the my favorite ones so all right then i'm out see you.